Please join me in welcoming back Yossi Chayis, who has not run away. He's made it through two and a half weeks in Orange County, mostly sun, and has a great program tonight. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you all very much. I think it's uh, probably true now that with this major acquisition of books, I am Penn's top-selling author. I think I just broke, <laughs> broke the glass ceiling. Never before have people asked that 50 copies of a Penn Press book be shipped out somewhere. So that's very exciting. Uh, too bad there are no royalties when you write these kinds of books. Um, but that's okay. It's a, it's a legacy. And hopefully by the next time I visit Orange County, there'll be uh, also some more recent scholarship in uh, more recently published books that I'll be able to throw in my satchel. Um, tonight is the third and unfortunately the last in this mini-series which has breathlessly taken us through the long history of Jewish esotericism. Um, I, I won't rehearse it because that'll just take our time, but you may recall that we managed to uh, spend a bit of time with the Zohar last week, which was uh, a pleasure. I'm glad that we, we snuck it in, uh, just say at the 90th minute, as they say in football countries, I mean soccer countries. Um, tonight, also, I, I, I also am uh, ambitiously hoping that I can give you the rest of this very sketchy outline of the chronology of Kabbalah, the kind of timeline that I've tried to give you up until now, but uh, without sacrificing the intimacy of reading some selected sources that uh, I've chosen from this impossibly large pool of possible sources to share with you. So the segue I would like to uh, begin with comes from, and this is the official beginning of my 45 minutes, okay? Thank you. So <clears throat> the segue is basically picking up where we left off in a way that I hope will also set the stage. Um, a lot of people who are interested in spirituality, mysticism today are uh, hooked into or plugged into various Eastern traditions. The Jew booze nowadays, Vipassana, Yom, Shabbatot, I don't know, all kinds of things like that. 15, 20 years ago, or maybe already since the 60s, there was a kind of Hindu thing, the, the uh, uh, various kind of ashram options that people looked for. A, a lot of the Eastern mystical teachings that people are used to thinking about emphasize the importance of emptying your mind, having a absolutely crystal clear consciousness with no complexity, the perfect simplicity of a mind that is focused only on the breath until it sort of you know, flatlines into perfect enlightenment. Um, not a tremendous amount of interest in getting into the nitty-gritty, dirty complexities of various pantheons. I mean, the, the, the way these Eastern traditions were brought to the West, a lot of the com local complexities were 
certainly lost. But what I'd like to start out with to frame this evening's discussion is that uh, the Kabbalah really doesn't place uh, an emphasis on the beauty of theological simplicity. But as you might have guessed by this point, they kind of really enjoy getting dirty with the, with the details of the mystical secrets of the Godhead and the structure of the divine world and the cosmos. And, and of course, the Torah is very complicated and needs to be explicated. And the mitzvot, each mitzvah needs to be explained. What does it do? Why did God put that in the Torah? What's the point of it? How does it work? They've got a lot to do. They're very, Kabbalists are very busy. They have to explain the entire cosmos and the Torah and how your body works, everything, right? Because that's whatever the differences are in Kabbalistic theory, the underlying presumption is it's a theory that can account for everything because it's the ultimate blueprint at the microscopic level or whatever of, of the cosmos. So I like this very much because it... It's Zoharic, so it's very story-like. It, it's a story. Um, but it's, uh, in a way, I'm bringing it to set the stage for the big head-first dive into complexity that we find in Lurianic Kabbalah and basically the last 300 years or so of Kabbalah's much less like the Zohar and its relatively simple backstory back or framework of 10 spherot. We could deal with 10. That's not too complex. It's too less than the astrologers have to worry about. So um, it gets much more complicated. But this is a celebration of things being a bit complicated rather than being uh, overly simple and uh, to me, my wife, you know, sh she's a Brazilian, but she lived most of her life in England. And so she would say, this is, this story is taking the piss, taking the piss of some kind of, I, I'll read it anachronistically, but it's almost like it, it's written about some guru who's just come down from the Himalayan peak. So there was a man who lived in the mountains he knew nothing about those who lived in the city. He sowed wheat and ate the kernels raw. So he's a, a mountain man living on the mountaintop. And one day he enters the city. The city folk offer him good bread. The man asks, what's this for? They replied, it's bread to eat. He ate it, thought it tasted good. What's it made of? They say, well, it's made of wheat. Hmm. Later they offered him Thick loaves kneaded with oil. He tasted them, liked them. What are they made of? They answered, wheat. Then they offered him some baklava, some uh, royal pastry kneaded with honey and oil. Hmm, pretty good too. What are these made of? They answered, wheat. He said, surely I'm the master of all of these since I eat the essence of all of these. Wheat. That's the end of the story. The Zohar comments on this story, because of that view, this man knew nothing of the delights of the world which were lost on him. 
eating a wheat kernel isn't the same as eating bread and baklava and challah and whatever, all those other things that we like. And the Zohar makes very clear that this is a, uh, a mashal, a parable. So it is with one who grasps the principle but is unaware of all those delectable delights deriving and diverging from that principle. So, you know, <clears throat> for all of the spiritual paths that give you that uh, quick insight into the nature of reality that leave you convinced that you're enlightened because you know the secret. You bought it, you, you spent the $9.99 on the paperback book and now you have the secret. You're enlightened. It's very simple, right? The, the secret is actually a great example of the, in my opinion, of course, the stupidest form of spiritual belief ever created on the face of the earth. I hope that doesn't offend anyone here <laughs> inadvertently, uh, but, um, but it's very simple. You know, you think good thoughts, good things happen. You think bad thoughts, bad things happen. So if something bad has happened to you, it's obviously your fault, right? It's very simple. That's the secret. Zohar says, that's so stupid. That's so stupid. Even if the principle is right, it's so stupid to think that you're so cool and so high and so enlightened because you know this principle. You could say, yes, you know, all is one. Okay. See how that goes for you over your lifetime. So anyway, I th this, is, this is a text, I think, that sets us up for some of the enjoyment of the richness uh, that the Kabbalah gives us in getting into all the possibilities uh, rather than just coming up with a nice pithy slogan uh, about enlightenment. All right, that's the, that's the intro. I, skeletal, historical, flyby timeline. Everything we've talked about so far has taken us as far as maybe the early 14th century. We have uh, hard times in the Iberian Peninsula ahead, beginning in 1391 with terrible pogroms that last a century until the Jews are expelled from Spain in 1492 after a hundred years of persecution and forced conversions. I'm really making this short, but you can get all of this on Wikipedia, so you didn't need to bring me for it. Ottoman Empire is the big destination for many of the refugees of the Iberian Peninsula, and the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire at the time is welcoming to the Jews who are seeking a new a place to establish themselves and even is uh, quoted on the record as saying that King Ferdinand of Spain was a moron. So um, <clears throat> the Jews, as you can see in this unfortunately Hebrew labeled map, anyway we know you, re you recognize the basic land masses and seas I'm sure and can see that Jews from uh, Spain are on the move to the Balkans, they go to Istanbul. And what happens that's really important for our story is that in 1516 the Ottomans take Palestine. And 
And that means that for the first time there's a guy running the show in Palestine who thinks that Jews can help develop the economy and they don't need to be persecuted in, a, in too much. Right? You, can always, you always have to persecute the Jews a little bit, even if you're quite enlightened Muslim ruler, you can't make them feel like they're equal with Muslims, but it's better than the Christians. So, um, This is the scene on the ground in the uh, Ottoman period for much of uh, the subsequent centuries, really, until the, uh, the, the, first, the end of the First World War, right? Um, the Ottomans are ruling this area. Um, not much in terms of local administration, mostly administered out of, out of other centers. Jerusalem was much less popular until the Jews uh, took over. Um, now everybody wants it, but uh, Jerusalem was actually administered out of Damascus by the Ottomans. Spot was administered out of Istanbul, and the terms for Jews choosing to move to Tzfat were more advantageous also that in terms of taxation and whatnot. I'm getting a little far from Kabbalah right now, but 1516, everybody in the Jewish world around the Mediterranean and the Middle East gets the news. If you want to, you can move to Israel. It's quite interesting that um, this opportunity doesn't mean that all the Jews around the world packed their bags and moved to Israel because then as now with critical differences obviously, to have a small fortune in Israel you'd have to bring a large fortune with you um, and making it in Israel was hard even in the best of times in the 16th century. Um, so I, I always describe the, the Aliyah, the, the immigration to Israel in the 16th century as a pietistic immigration. In other words, this is why it happens that in the course of the 16th century, some of the greatest rabbis of that period established themselves in Israel and in Sfat in particular. Um, it's pietistic, oh, that was an explanation, but it, in other words, you don't go to Israel in the 16th century, uh, even to escape persecution, you don't go there to establish a business. You go there to fulfill your dream of settling in the land of Israel, to fulfill the mitzvah of settling in the land of Israel. You do so often with communal support and local philanthropy from the place that you came from. So you're kind of fulfilling a dream of your community and there are a lot of communities represented in Spad in this time. Um, and in addition to the economic incentives of living in Sfat uh, over Jerusalem, Sfat also is right in the midst of all the stories we've been reading about from the Zohar. The Zohar narratives all take place in the hills around Sfat. And from just about anywhere in Sfat, you can see across to Miron, where Shimon, Shimon Bar Yochai, Rashbi and his son are traditionally uh, thought to be buried, and it's a pilgrimage site, a holy place, uh, now more than ever. Um, so Sfat became a magnet for some of the greatest minds uh, and greatest leaders of the Jewish world in the 16th century.
And that's where the Kabbalistic Renaissance took place that's of note in our context. Um, it was, okay, <clears throat> so that, that's uh, Miron taken from Tzfat where Rashbi's buried, a little iconography so you can see the centrality uh, of, the, of the dead, the presence of the dead, the holy saints, first from the rabbinic era and then very quickly the people who came to venerate those rabbinic saints in the 16th century became the objects of veneration in subsequent centuries. Um, this, is a, this is a text that from, from the 16th century that speaks about the, the attractiveness of Tzfat as a place to die and uh, a particularly auspicious place to be buried. But, um, but it, with this text we finally get uh, a little taste of Luriana Kabbalah, which will take up most of our remaining time. Uh, not this text, but the Kabbalah of Isaac Luria, especially from a, um, a, a less theoretical and more embodied point of view. Like, how, what was it like to be around Isaac Luria? What was, what was it like to do the Kabbalah of Isaac Luria? So this text is one written by Chaim Vital, who was Luria's top student for the very short time they had together in Sfat, from about 1570 to 1572, take away a few months. Um, unfortunately, Luria perished in his 30s, a uh, victim of a plague. And Vital, who'd only studied with him for a year and a half, if he was lucky, was at the time of his teacher's death, still a young man in his 20s, and he lived another 50 years. He died in 1620 in Damascus, where he's buried. He spent the next 50 years basically writing up what he learned from Luria in that year and a half, and writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And when you go to the holy bookstore in Jerusalem or, or, or uh, I don't know, uh, somewhere. Yeah, I remember there was one in LA when I came and then in the 80s on Pico. I remember, I forget the guy's name, he was very nice. Um, but in any case, uh, you'll see a bookshelf that says the writings of the Ari, 20 volumes, Luria's Kabbalah. Turns out, first of all, they weren't written by Luria, but by Vital. And these 20 volumes are full of the various rewrites of what he learned. Uh, it's, 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 I, I like to say the only thing more complicated than Luriana Kabbalah is the history of the texts that I'm speaking about now, their writing and rewriting and the editing that they went through over a series of generations. It's, it's a crazy story. But this is what it was like to be with him. That's why I brought you this text. Vital says, I was with him several times. And we would be walking in the field and he would just say, looking at a rock, here's a man by the name of so-and-so, righteous and a scholar, and due to such and such a son he committed in his life, he's now transmigrated into this stone or this plant. My teacher, may his memory be a, a blessing, never knew this person, though when we inquired after him, subsequently we found his words to be accurate and true. There's no point in going on at length about these matters since no book could contain them. Sometimes he would gaze from a distance of 500 hand breaths at a particular grave, one among 20,000, and would see the soul of the dead there interred standing upon the grave. He would then say to us, in that grave is buried such and such a man, 
by the name of so-and-so, they're punishing him with such and such a punishment. We would inquire after that man and found his words to be true. That's what it's like to take a hike with Isaac Luria. Um, now, Vital goes on. This is just wonderful material, and it's, uh, he talks about Luria knowing the language of the birds and the language of the trees, and I mean, he's... He's not, he's not the only one, but nobody else is, is described with these kinds of superlatives and as being as... Was Vital the only student of... Oh, no. Wrote these things? Uh, no, no. No, no. There were others. Um, that's also a very interesting story. What happens after Vital dies, after Luria dies among the students and the, a little bit of jockeying and it was... But yeah, there were others and this... Uh, correlates well to the other descriptions of the Ari. Some old pictures of the graves. These are, of course, uh, not, the, n not those um, prophetically revealed graves of the ancient rabbis, but the graves of those 16th century figures as they looked nearly 100 years ago now in Sfat. Yosef Karo's grave there. Uh, this is the Ari's grave in the 1930s. I wish I could tell you it still looked like that today. Um, as a kind of an aside, uh, a lot of the pilgrimages to the land of Israel um, until quite recently were devoted to visiting the graves of the saints and various figures, right? And, and the earliest Lonely Planet guides that you find uh, are actually grave guides like these uh, from the middle of the 19th century with cities m labeled and each city, you know, you can kind of look at carefully and see, oh, oh this is Tzfat and who can you expect to find there when you go? Who, upon whose grave will you be able to prostrate yourself? So that's a bit of history. Uh, the, so the transition, and to kind of summarize it as I see it, some of you may have seen this slide once before. I use it a couple of times. Uh, Zohar, I, I want you to feel, is a romantic work uh, about the desire that, uh, the, the, that one should feel in learning Torah and, and of course, the desire for... Uh, connecting to God's presence. And it's not about information. It's, not, it's really not technical. The technical part of it is well hidden. So you have to, it's had, not, not, not in a bad way. It's just like saying, uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare had great grammar. I don't know, it's just, <laughs> okay, that's nice. So you know, the grammar of the Zohar is that it's, playing by the, the, the certain rules. They're ten spheros, they have different qualities. You know? But they're not banging it over the head. That's not the point. It's, they're, already, they're already playing with these things at a, on a kind of a, a different level. Um, so it's always, it's always inviting, it's always attractive, and always uh, romantic, I would say, even to read it. When I get together with my friends uh, to study Zohar, it's, we read it like poetry. And it's beautiful, and nobody feels like they need to even necessarily explain everything, but you can say what it brings up for you. It's quite, it's, it's quite nice. Somebody asked me the other day, what should I do if I want to learn Kabbalah? My current 
recommendation is get a copy of one of Daniel Matt's books. Get a, couple, get a couple more friends together, open a nice bottle of wine, or go to a dispensary and get yourselves a big spliff, and sit down and start learning Zohar, have fun. That's, that's what you should do. I'm not telling you, I'm just saying that these are options, but this is a beautiful way of studying Zohar. And everything I've just said is 100% legal. So, you know, you can't hear, but I'm, I, I'm here. I'm, I'm talking to you. Of course, I wouldn't say this elsewhere. I've, I've certainly never said that in a lecture before, and it's only because I'm in California after January 1st, 2018, that I feel like it's kind of fun to say that out loud. Um, otherwise, it would have to just be a wink. Etz um, Chaim, that's that canonical work of, Lur of Luriana Kabbalah, quite mechanistic in its approach. That's just a little visual. Um, so, okay. Very brief on the story side of Luriana Kabbalah, because I do want to spend uh, some of our final minutes looking at its implementation. This is what I have to say on the level of the narrative. This is what you'll read most if you open uh, typical work on Luriana Kabbalah, the stories, right? The story of how the world was created when the undifferentiated, infinite, divine, vacated, uh, a spherical space so as to enable a subsequent emanation into that space that would ultimately result in all of the levels of creation down to our, down to our own. Uh, one little piece of that story that I neglected to mention now is this mysterious apparent mishap, or was it intentional, that in an early stage of the emanation, the vessels of light that were emanated in order to receive the influx of light were not of sufficient strength and stability to take that job on. And as a result, the vessels shattered. And some of that light was reabsorbed into the infinite ground of being, and some of those sparks of light uh, fell down, wherever that is, but down into the murkier realms that um, also give rise to evil, and there's a whole story here as well, hiding, but God starts over again, you might say, and, and instead of emanating the spherot as a pillar going all the way up and down, straight up, which was the unstable structure of the initial spherotic emanation, God says, okay, I gotta do this more like a tripod. Right? And so the spherotic structure that we're familiar with, that I've talked about a little bit with right, left, and center, is the kind of um, evenly dis distributed scales model or tripod approach that brings a new stability to the process of emanation. And Luria also uses a lot of really interesting biological and anatomical language to talk about the processes of the more stable emanatory structures, like there's mom, there's Abba Vi'ima, mom and dad emanation, 
That's a reconfiguration of higher spherot with a new kind of stability. And in Luria's world, mom and dad are always together. Abba ve'ima, they, he calls them two lovers who are ever united. The problem is they then have a family and <laughs> they, um, they end up <coughs> generating levels of divine being that are um, less stable, not in the sense that they're going to shatter like we had before, but the equilibrium can, can go off and the major, uh, the major intersection in this new stable network was supposed to be from um, the deity that's sort of uh, presumed to be the Jewish God that we interact with in our prayers and is in the Bible and so forth. We call it the Blessed Holy One, Holy One, Blessed Be He can also be called in this new spherotic system, Zer Anpin, the uh, impatient one. That's one way, the short-tempered one. It's a God that's a little bit, you know, jealous, whatever, um, short-tempered. That's unfortunately the God that most of us uh, have encountered in the tradition, and many of us suffer from perceptions of God that don't go beyond this small, small consciousness God. Um, and that God is supposed to be in union with the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah, the divine presence. So that's the male-female polarity of that system that's supposed to keep the energy flowing. But the problem is, unlike mom and dad, who are always together, the Karsh Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah, or Zeranpin and Nuk- Nukbe, the, his, his female, counterpart are in a state of constant flux and sometimes they're back to back, sometimes they're face to face, but all human action, all human endeavor is meant to restore the face to face love of the Holy One, blessed be He, and the Shekhinah in their new, more consolidated and and stable forms. so every, at some point, uh, this was not a, something that Luria re- required, but at some point uh, it became quite common for Jews to recite before fulfilling any commandment, I do this in order to restore the union of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah, the Holy Blessed One and the, and the Shekhinah. <laughs> Shekhinah is the translation of Shekhinah. Um, and that's L'Shem Yichud Kuchibrichu Shechintei B'Dechilu Rechimu you may have noticed that it's still used today in Sfirata Omer and some other places hmm? in, in your Haggadah it depends it's, in, it's found in different places but this is a kind of that's the big that's the big goal okay so now I want to take you to a higher resolution and look at what it means in practice. You're now a Luriana Kabbalist, so what are you supposed to do? You just heard a very nice story, but I can't remember in which context I said it recently. What about the math? Right? The real Kabbalah, like physics, it's not the cat, it's the, it's the math. Right? So I decided to take <laughs> one 
kind of Kabbalistic practice and uh, share it with you, show, show you how it looks. This is from a very typical uh, Lurianic Sidur prayer book. And it's, it's, uh, it's called the Sidur of Rabbi Asher, it, Rabbi Asher's prayer book, and it was printed roughly at the time of uh, the origins of Eastern European Hasidism. So it comes from that Eastern European environment around the 18th century. But uh, here you see, for those of you who know Hebrew, at the very top it says intentions to be thought about <laughs> when you walk on your, on your walk to the synagogue. This is so already, you don't have to wait till you get to shul to start your, your work. You have plenty of work to do en route. And if I magnify, this section is the actual prayer with its um, intentions, its kavanot. There are two, I have to say that one thing, and that is you, many of you will have heard the word kavana, kavana. Kavana. I don't know how you heard it, but probably something like, like that. Someone will say, it's important to pray or daven with kavana. What do they mean when they say that? That means don't check your cell phone in the middle of the Shmonasrei and whatever, think about whether you're going to call your, your, your broker and, or if you have to pick up some milk on your way back from shul. No. Really say it like you, like you mean it, basically, be here now with, uh, with the davening. Uh, that's kavana, singular. Kavanot is plural, and it, it doesn't mean just pray your guts out, you know, daven like, you know, with, with a full focus on what are you asking for, and think about every word that you're saying and what you're asking from a Baruch Hu. That's kavana, right? Kavanot is... I'm now a locksmith, and the divine realm is a vault. But if I have the kavanot, if I have the secret codes, the passwords, the correct understandings, right? I can pick the locks of the divine realm, not just for my benefit, of course. The whole thing is l'shem yichud kitshabrichu shchinte. I'm, I am the guy who now knows how to go into the mainframe of the cosmos, and I'm going to do a terrible mixed metaphor, because I guess you might not do this to a mainframe, but like, <laughs> I'm thinking more like in the tin man is about as far as my engineering knowledge can take me. So you have an oil can, and you know over here, you know, <laughs> you know, you get that oil, the certain kavanot get get the arm moving a little bit, and the other kavana gets the leg moving a little bit, and all of a sudden, what do you know? You have kind of uh, lubricated the cosmos so that things are going to flow just the way they were meant to flow. This is not to interrupt. Sure. Yes. Do these people believe that they individually could affect yeah. the system, or that they need a lot of people? So I'd have to do it, no one has to do it to us, or I could do it myself, and no one could do it by himself. I mean, the, the simple answer is yes, you can do it by yourself, and of course, it's so much better if others are no, on board with you. But absolutely, the, it's kind of crazy the implied hubris of this system. 
Um, my teacher, Moshe Idel, who I guess hasn't yet been a CSP guy, but he can be bought. Um, uh, Moshe Idel said, get if you'll need another couple of super patrons, I think, for this, for this guy. He's going to make Ruderman seem cheap. But uh, Idel, you know, said in my presence once that that uh, one of the most famous books of, of intellectual history in the 20th century was by a guy named Arthur Lovejoy called the, right, I hope I didn't mix that up with some other weird book, but it's Lovejoy's book, it's called The, Ch uh, it's called the Great Chain of Being. The, and it's a history of this concept in Western thought going back to the Greeks and an incredibly learned march through history, how everybody has had this notion that there's a chain of being replicating and, and being transposed from level to level, from the highest heights to the lowest low points. Um, and Edel said, yeah, he, he got it just about right for Jewish thought, except that the Jews, unlike everybody else, say that there's a great chain of being, but at the end of the chain, there's a Jew yanking the chain. <laughs> That's my free translation of Edel's insight. But yes, you can be that Jew yanking the chain. That's, that's all it takes. Um, so I translated this, which is a, a ridiculous thing to do. But this is, this is what I came up with for the first part of it. And it's quite a literal translation, maybe too literal. But it, it begins with those directions, so that the supernal holiness might rest upon one, give one strength to join worlds in prayer, one must make one of oneself a throne for holiness. Say it with full mouth and pure thought. I guess that means it's not something only to be meditated upon without moving your lips, but you can actually say this, I want to say, uh, say this kavana, but not right, kavana as the singular form of the plural version of the concept. So, I hereby mechaven, that's the verbal form of the noun that we've been using, kavana. I intend to make myself a throne for holiness, a kiselik dusha. My head is a throne for yudhe vavhe. You're going to see how in this meditation, the, which is a relatively simple kavana, you're playing primarily with forms of the tetragrammaton, the yudhe vavhe name of God and the ten spherot. So by Lurianic standards, it's a good beginner kavana. So you imagine, you intend that your head is now a vessel or a throne for yudhe with the vowel kamats, that's the one that looks like a T, and the two lobes of your brain are corresponding to the yud and he of the four-letter name of God. And those correspond to wisdom, intuition, and understanding articulation. Right, your right brain lobe, I guess, is yud he vav he with the underlying vowel called patach. And the left is also yud he vav he vocalized with um, the tzere, which is two dots next to each other, just so that you can see, um, well, in this particular prayer book, he hasn't given you all of the, huh? 
He didn't give it to you. It's just written. I forgot. In some Sidurim, you do see they give you the vowels. But, okay, he didn't give you the vowels. My ears are yud hey vav hey gematria ear. This is classic. Those of you who heard already a magic talk or an exorcism talk will get a little bit of what's going on here. But one of the things that you find Lurianic um, practices based upon is the expansion of the tetragrammaton by spelling it out in full. Did I, did I, I didn't mention this yet in, the, in this context, did I? Like in English, if I say uh, Y-H-V-H or whatever, I could say, well, how, how would you spell Y? And you might, I guess you could, you could, you could answer back to me W-H-Y. Although that, that's a, for the most part, people say that the English alphabet is just the letter. You know, like A is spelled A. And you, know, you could write B-E-E -E for B, I suppose. But in Hebrew, they have a, a very developed sense of the letter as a word. So Aleph, the letter Aleph is Aleph Lamid Pei. And Bet is Bet, bet Yud Taf. It's not just the sound, but it's a whole thing. Yeah? For sure. He's doing both. Yeah, the, he's doing both in one place. He's saying, okay, if you want to know about your ears and how you make your ears a throne for holiness, the, you have to imagine that your ears, you, you, I guess, visualize a form of the divine name in which it has been expanded so that the Yud is now spelled Yud Vav Dalad, which also has the numerical value of 20, because Yud is 10, Vav is 6, Dalit is 4. And also, He is spelled He Yud, could also be spelled in other ways, as you'll see below. Vav is spelled Vav Aleph Vav, and so forth. If you add those up, you get to the numerical value of the Hebrew word for ear, which shows you that in the secret structure of the entire creation, there is an actual correspondence between the holiness that is expressed in this expansion of the tetragrammaton and ears. And ears participate in this endless um, sea of correspondences. Um, and each yud hey vav hey, any, any word can be spelled out, any letter can be spelled, any word could undergo this process, but the yud hey vav hey being God's main name in Jewish tradition, going back to the Bible, really, um, that's, the, that's the one they're most interested in, and they will make use of the fact in practices like this that people familiar with the system will know that your choices about how to spell it out actually determine whether the expansion will carry the power of one particular spiritual constellation or another. So you may have heard the idea that there are four worlds in Kabbalah, right? A lot of fours. Four worlds in Kabbalah, the world of emanation, right? And, um, and, and creation, formation, and action. The Kabbalists 
in the Lurianic school will say, if you take the yud he vav he name and you expand it with an emphasis on yud in the expansion, that is the way the name of God blossoms in the world of emanation. And if you spell it with he's uh, or alephs, or if you minimize the expansion by emitting those letter vowels, you generate versions of the name that are on the frequencies of those different worlds. So everything here is, is impregnated with, suffused with multiple levels of meaning. You've got the gematria, the numerical thing happening, the yud heh vav the old ancient Jewish magical beliefs around the tetragrammaton, and the idea of the four worlds, and they're playing with the spherot, and you're walking to shul, and <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> uh, you're with kids, right, right. They do, I mean, they, they do say of uh, Luria that uh, he, it's something almost always remarked upon. This is, uh, this is, I guess, doesn't really get to the heart of your question, but he was good to his mother. Uh, and he would come home from shul. The first thing he did when he came home from shul was find his mother and kiss her hands. So, so he seems to have been at least a, like a little bit of a mensch. But you're right, kids do interfere with Kabbalistic practice. As the father of five, I can tell you that why I'm just an academic and not an actual Kabbalist. I have time to like translate this, but I can't do it. Um, so anyway, you basically get the idea, right? I could continue, I should say, anything I've shown to you so far, PowerPoint, text, I'm happy to share as PDFs, and, and we can do that very easily. But, but um, yeah? Just looking at that last piece you showed us, uh -huh. Right. You would have to be very, very knowledgeable about the numerology and the alphabet and that. I mean, who could figure that out? Well, you know what? That book has been on the market for a couple hundred years. People have been buying it. If you go to Mayasharam tomorrow, you'll see it's still on sale. So, you know, people may be keeping it as a good luck charm in their homes, but I think. There, in every generation, there are people who crack the system and who can, who can use it and uh, choose to use it. The thing that I wanted to bring out, as much as giving you the, a real taste of the, of the material directly, um, was that for all of the stories about Luriana Kabbalah and the kind of mythic notions that most of the time are emphasized in introductions to it, um, for real Luriana Kabbalists, the money was in the performative, ritual, um, intentional exercises like th this one that I've shared with you. So, like being a Luriana Kabbalist is not about saying like, yeah, there was a Tzim Tzum, and then there was a Shvira, and <laughs> vessels broke, and it was really heavy. No, that wasn't such so interesting to them. They thought that what was interesting was get the system, get the, uh, you know, get, get all of the rules of the game, you might say, and then play. You don't study the, the theoretical literature because you're so interested 
and the rules of the game. You study the rules of the game so that you can play the game. And this is what playing the game actually looks like. Right? So this is, this is Luria. Now you're never going to believe what I'm going to do. I'm now 39 seconds late according to my watch. Um, now, super fast epilogue. So this is my last of three, so I, I take just two minutes, which you now know means five to ten, to just do this very quick exercise. Shabtai Tzvi is right there. Sholem loved to say that you could understand the rest of Jewish history on the basis of the reactions to Luriana Kabbalah. It's all a dialectic, the great dialectic of history. Luria put this idea out that there were sparks that got lost in the netherworlds and the, the worst places. And this was picked up on by the Sabatian Kabbalists who managed to galvanize uh, people into a mass messianic movement that was the most significant since Christianity. Um, and Shabtai Tzvi was identified by his prophet and PR guy, Nathan of Gaza, as, as the, the one to do it. He's the one to go where no man has gone before and get those sparks out. That's why he's the Messiah. He's the mystical Messiah or the Kabbalistic Messiah because he will go where no self-respecting good, good Jewish boy rabbi would go. He will go dark. And when he apostatizes in 1666, becomes a Muslim at the Sultan's uh, suggestion, um, <laughs> his, his uh, PR guy says, I, that's right, exactly, because obviously, just like, you know, you're watching like Seth, what is the guy, Sean Spencer going like, yeah, um, you know, it's perfectly consistent. Spicer, yeah, Spicer. So thank goodness enough time has passed that I've already forgotten his name. Um, but uh, there's still room for improvement. Why did Shabtai Tzvi become a Muslim? Because everybody knows Islam is the worst thing in the world. So we needed somebody to become a Muslim to get those sparks. Those are the last ones because there ain't nothing as bad as Islam. So our Messiah has to become a Muslim. It's obvious. Right? So that's perfectly consistent um, Sabatian apologetics. Um, and this doesn't end well. Right? Uh, really, as a mass movement, his conversion to Islam was enough. For mo most Jews who thought it was great that the Messiah had come, uh, sort of sheepishly went back to their daily routines uh, shortly after this apostasy. Um, but there were actually a lot of cool ideas articulated by the architects of Sabatianism. Like they actually were very creative people. Um, and you can just, uh, justifiably accuse me of being part of this tradition of academics who kind of have a little closet of love affair with Sabatian theology. Um, but it's true, when you start reading it, you think like, wow, it, it sounds a lot like regular Kabbalah, but it's, it's like walking on the wild side a little bit. It's kind of having some fun, and it's creative and interesting, and a lot of it is not so in your face about Shabtai Tzvi as to make it immediately obvious that it's heretical, 
Like, who's to say? Like, Kabbalists say lots of weird things. Why is that heretical and that's not heretical? A lot of this material, which is circulating in manuscript, gets copied and people will write on it, this was written by Chaim Vital. Well, it was actually written by Nathan of Gaza. But a lot of people will read it and have no idea that it's not okay. And in this way, Sabbatianism, in a, in a kind of a non-messianic ex expression, just some of the, the ideas about you know, getting dirty to, if you really want to get holy, you got to get a little dirty also. You know, that, these things become part of the normal world of Jewry in the 17th and 18th centuries. And Hasidism is built in many respects on a foundation of Sabbatian insights. Not only Hasidism, but other, other phenomena as well. Yes, you can, you can uh, Chabad, here I'll give you a little ammo. The greatest historical scholar among Chabadniks of the last generations is, was a guy named Josh, Yehoshua, Joshua Monshine. And he was n never a, an academic with a position in the university, but he published academic style writing on the history of Chabad in particular and Hasidism. And a number of years ago, he just died actually quite recently, he published a critical edition and facsimile of the earliest known manuscript of the Tales of the Baal Shem Tov, the hagiographical collection of stories about the Baal Shem Tov. It's a very important historical source for all of its fantasy. And uh, he has on one side the facsimile of the manuscript, on the other side his typed out version of it. Well, somebody noticed, somebody actually was reading both, and noticed that there's a story that talks about how the Baal Shem Tov had a dream in which he found himself standing together with Jesus and Shabtai Tzvi and having a whole, you know, a whole conversation with Shabtai Tzvi. And this, what, he couldn't, he didn't Photoshop the picture, but none of this wound up in the transcript. So this is a definite broken toe, if you want to step on it. The Chabadniks are not going to be happy to talk about um, the, the importance of Sabbatianism in the background of Hasidism. I sh should make it perfectly clear that I don't think that that's a shameful thing, and I don't think it's uh, and it meant, I don't mean it as if to say that Hasidism is heretical. I mean to say that Sabbatianism became domesticated, that Sabbatianism sort of made itself, once the messianic movement of it dropped by the wayside, the more creative and innovative moves that, it, that were made by its thinkers became absorbed and possible to, uh, to leverage without going messianic. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Okay. Um, that's, the Vilna Gaon was probably upset about the fact that as an old-fashioned Kabbalist himself, the, ha the Hasidic movement was the first mass movement since Sabbatianism to suggest um, that Kabbalah could be shared at a, more popularly. I mean, maybe that's, 
Maybe that's what you were asking, but well, it's... Was he afraid because, because of, you know, Shabtai and the false Mashiach and all of that, that he was afraid that, you know, this is going to lead down that same path yet again, and right. he didn't want the Jewish people to do that? Well, there was a, certainly a lot, of sus- a lot of suspicion around the dissemination of Kabbalah in the wake of Sabbatianism, and, and really the beginnings of reactionary religiosity in the Jewish world can be traced to the aftermath of the Sabbatian debacle, if that's how you pronounce that word. Um, To me, this is really when there's a sea change in the way rabbis operate and the way they they, um, approach tradition. We don't have that kind of reactionary mentality before, and this suspicion and this new insistence on uh, what will come to be called orthodoxy is really unprecedented in Jewish history. Um, so Hasidism is a, I mean, this is a part of the story. I'm ending with Hasidism, but just to show you uh, the Baal Shem, that's not a real picture of the Baal Shem Tov, that's, the, that's Shmuel Falk, the Baal Shem of London but uh, often used as a picture. Could have been the Baal Shem Tov if the Baal Shem Tov had looked like that. Um, so now, and the one thing I want to say about Hasidism in terms of how it's dealing with Kabbalah is that you get different circles. We're back in Kabbalah, we're back to concentric circles again. At the center is the Rebbe, the Tzaddik, okay? Almost always that person is a Kabbalist, often old school, serious, still doing Lurianic practices like we looked at a moment ago. But those aren't generally being sold to the broader public. There might be an inner circle of Hasidim who study Kabbalah in the old ways, but for the most part they're learning how to translate and psychologize Kabbalistic concepts for a much broader audience. And it, so it's a really interesting a graduated uh, f- social phenomenon with different uh, ways of relating to Kabbalah depending upon where you are in the network. Yes, Ari? No, I was just wondering, so the Sebastian part, did you argue that's the messianic part that's kind of in, you see in the Kabbalah movement now and in many Hasidic circles where that single person is the person that's really connected to God and has powers and abilities I don't, I don't know that to get to the messianic belief, they needed Sabbatian theology in particular. Like, there's nothing obviously Sabbatian about the way they're talking about the Rebbe. It's it, to me, it sounds more Christian than Sabbatian. Like he didn't really die, or he died and he's coming back, and he's Wait, and he's sometimes de- de- deified. Ah, sure. Right. That's right. But again, that's not that's not so st- distinctively Sabbatian either. No, the the Sabbatian stuff comes in in their um, in their t- what we what's called in the world of of Hasidus, in the Torahs, and you know every great Hasidic rabbi either in his lifetime or posthumously with the help of the Chassidim, published some sfarim of the things they said on, on Shabbos, things they said, Shalashudis, right, at the third meal. That's most of the 
sects of Hasidism, most of the Hasidic courts have their bookshelf of the teachings of their rabbi. And those, are, those can be fairly sophisticated teachings meant for the students who are really interested in engaging their leadership, not just on the level of the kvittel and give me a bracha, I should be a But I know I want to get your insight on, on Torah ideas. Right? Um, let me give you a quick example. This is a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov compare on prayer. Compare it to what we just saw in the Lurianic material. He says about prayer, you want to know about prayer? You don't need the keys to the kingdom by going through and getting all of these details from the Kavanot. He says prayer is a zivug. It's, get, it's, hook, it's, it's connecting with the Shekhinah. Just as the, at the beginning of the conjunction there is swaying when we talk about human uh, coupling, so must one sway in prayer at the beginning. So shuckling is just the sex exactly the same as making love. Afterwards, one can stand with no swaying, adhering to the shekhinah and great adhesion, vekut, just like it says in the Torah, a man clings to his wife in his one flesh. That's vekut, that is the state of samadhi in in Hasidism. And from the power of swaying, one may come to great stimulation. Think, why am I making myself sway? So you're getting yourself into this state. The Shekhinah is certainly standing before me. From the power of this, one comes to great ecstasy. Another really quick one, how do you pray? What's the technique? If there's a technique, the Baal Shem Tov says, go from letter to letter, break down the liturgy so that it's no longer intelligible, coherent, semantic blocks that we call sentences, or even words that have meaning. But break it down, atomize it into the letters, and start looking at your sidur as a sequence, as a series of letters, right? And in your imagination, as you look at those letters, imagine that each Within each word, one letter is, is making love to the letter next to it. The letters are combining, and each of those words is like a kind of great love fest. And you go from letter to letter and until one forgets physicality. It's a, it is a kind of uh, ecstatic practice. It is an ecstatic practice. One should imagine the letters combining and conjoining. This gives great pleasure. Imagine the pleasure it gives in the flesh, how much more so in the spirit, and so on. So uh, I think this is the last thing I put in, is that is a bit of, a, again, taking the piss now of Lurianic Kabbalists. What would it mean to make um, a, a joke at their expense? Well. Let's say you're a great Luriana Kabbalist. You got that prayer book with all those intentions, all those kavanot that we looked at a few minutes ago. Well, <clears throat> you think you're so great, but you're limited to the intentions that are printed in that book that you know about. But the cosmos is infinite and God is infinite and you're in a kind of trap limited by the extent of your own knowledge that you can only overcome if you drop the whole knowledge 
thing and the whole locksmith approach and instead arouse yourself to relate to the liturgy as, um, as an occasion for uh, allowing these in internal divine connections to express themselves spontaneously as you imagine each of these holy 22 letters and each and every word of each and every prayer uh, basically um, in a state of ecstatic love that you join and facilitate through your consciousness and, uh, and the care that you give to their utterance. So uh, the Baal Shem Tov is in a very different place. It's hard for people to comprehend, but even with it, within this environment of uh, skepticism with regard to the possibilities of being that code breaker, um, there are still many people using those Lurianic techniques, and there's general um, acceptance of the fact that an elite will want to still continue with these very sophisticated and technical practices. But for most of us, the Baal Shem Tov says, sometime in the middle of the 18th century, you have my permission to stop doing that. That's not the spiritual practice that you need, that we need right now. What we need is this kind of open-hearted, much more emotional and uh, spontaneous kinds of, uh, of revelations of, uh, of divinity in our, in, our, in our hearts and minds and souls. Um, so we did make it to Hasidism. I did go 20 minutes over. Um, and uh, we didn't quite make it into the 20th century, but you could say that with these figures, um, Kabbalah is now not only intended for uh, you know, the religious community, and, uh, but because the 20th century involves, for the first time in Jewish history, a very significant number of non-religious, non-traditional people, the architects of modern Kabbalah Rav Cook and Rav Ashlag, to a significant extent, make it their jobs to try and re are, um, reformulate Kabbalah in languages that people with no background can, uh, can relate to and understand. Um, I don't think that their projects were successful, because I don't think that their writing is particularly easy for people to comprehend today, but it is true that Rav Ashlag's legacy was monetized in the, the last 20, 30 years by the Berg family who created the monster we know of as the Kabbalah Center and Madonna and so forth. So, um, so it is certainly having an impact, um, as Kabbalah apparently has um, managed to do now for the better part of a millennium, and with uh, apologies for running over, but no request for overtime, I humbly end the show. <laughs> I guess it doesn't go anywhere. Okay. Not many of you. Sure. Well, let me hear some new voices. Yeah. Those of you who have books and you want them to sign, he's here all night. That's right. <laughs> sure. Well, he said in the first lecture that this kind of thing is not 
came about because they wanted to make the religion a little more scientific yes. and, and structured and that's right. got all the spears and everything. And Where'd that go? disrespectful, there is no science in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I could never meet the scientific yeah. method. Uh -huh. And people of today would know that. Mm -hmm. So what makes it still Right. Well, you repeat the question? she says, uh, you, uh, she recalls that in my first lecture I emphasized the importance of science and the sense that Kabbalah was a kind of divine science or, or science in any, in any sense. But now we know better, so why does anybody still care about Kabbalah? I would say, I think, two things. One is that, um, that we have to, to make it a fair question, you have to bear in mind that what we think of today as science has uh, relatively little to do with the way science was imagined for centuries, you know, going back to the early Middle Ages, going back to Greek antiquity, if you want. Um, so, so Kabbalah was, in fact, a, a legitimate science by medieval standards. Um, you might say, if you wanted to be nitpicky, it's a, it's, a, it's a platonic form of science and not an Aristotelian form of science because it emphasizes that the archetypes are the only real thing and that everything that you can truly know, you must know at the level of the divine archetypal form and not from the transient manifestations and expressions in our debased material world. So for centuries, Kabbalah really made the grade, made the cut. Why do people think it's valuable today um, is a, a, an altogether different question. I think obviously people aren't looking for Kabbalah necessarily to answer scientific questions, but we certainly live in an age of disillusionment with science. So people are often looking for some kind of an, an alternative after, uh, I mean, I think this has been true since the counterculture emerged in whenever the early 60s, that we saw how technology got us to the Second World War and, and the disillusionment, of course, of uh, thinking that science was going to save the world and, and uh, some kind of renewed interest in what ancient wisdoms might bring to the table. Maybe we forgot something. Maybe there was some insight in there that could be useful to us. Um, and I would say that you, you may find it completely unconvincing, and I personally am not interested in this phenomenon, but there is undoubtedly uh, a, a significant group for whom um, showing similarities between certain forms of modern science and Kabbalah is uh, some sort of important quest that they, you know, that they find themselves on. So even Daniel Matt has succumbed to this mental illness and written a book called Kabbalah and the Big Bang. So that if you understand Kabbalah, you'll see how it sort of poetically anticipated modern uh, quantum physics and, and the, cos the cosmogony of the best physicists at MIT today. I'm not sure why anybody would want to make that argument, but it's not that Danny is inventing something new 
you may remember the dancing Wuli masters or the Tao of Pooh or whatever. They're the physics of, what is it? The Tao of physics. The Tao of, the Tao of Pooh is something else. That was the Winnie the Pooh Taoist uh, thing. But the Tao of physics came decades before that somehow these mystical traditions are not resonating with uh, what's going on today in terms of uh, you know, bio medical and high-tech stuff, but if you, if you listen to what the poetic physicists are saying at the MIT and the Technion and Cal Tech, that sounds a bit like mysticism. It's starting to sound a bit like Luriana Kabbalah and the undifferentiated ground of being and then this all of a sudden uh, a kind of uh, withdrawal and and instant emergence of this limitless cosmos. Uh, so it's on the le level of kind of poetry and wish fulfillment, I suppose. But um, I'm, I've, I'm interested in it intellectually and as poetry for the most part. And I have, I'm a devotional person and I enjoy occasionally experimenting with seeing what happens if I, if I give myself over to one of these meditations, so, uh, but I'm not, uh, so, yeah, yes? One more question. It seems like what started as a, a scientific endeavor uh, morphed more, at least in the Lurianic Kabbalah, into like the sexualization of Judaism, which is really interesting, mm. because I'm thinking, how would I explain this to a non-Jewish friend, you know, like, um, the way that Prayer becomes population. I mean, it's just like, and. It would fill the synagogues up, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but then I'm thinking, no wonder they, you know, they had to keep kids away from it, and, and women, and people who weren't up to a certain age, because it's very sexual. And, and, and so I understand the whole thing about Kabbalah involving the Shekinah and God and, and the, the intercourse and all that, but why? Why does the sexual aspect of it seem to become so pronounced? Right. Right. I mean, the the uh, I mean, if you ask Freud, he probably would say because that's what everybody's thinking about all the time. So at least the Kabbalists are honest. Uh, it's you know there is a I'm also disturbed sometimes when I read academic literature on Kabbalah and the writing doesn't show an, an awareness of the fact that Kabbalists are using this sexualized language very um, much uh, as, as, a, as, as a metaphor. I mean, they'll say, they'll say, you know how good sex is? Well, dominating should be good like that, okay? But it, but it doesn't mean that what you see in the writings of some of my colleagues, that the Kabbalists are, you know, um, are, are, yeah, like, they, the way they write it, it's almost like there's sex in the Godhead. And that's not really meant to, it's not meant to be that crass. And usually the Kabbalists will write something that I'm, I'm also, at least suspicious of as a kind of a lip service, but they'll say, look, we, we're using human language so that you can understand what we're talking about on the basis of your experience as a soul in a body that has these 
experiences and hungers and passions and desires and so forth. Learn from your experience as an embodied human something about the structure of, of the whole cosmos. And in their opinion, the whole cosmos is unfolding because of this basic polarity uh, and attraction between um, a kind of a male and a female element, although they wouldn't, as I said in a previous session, the roles can flip, uh, you know, and what was male becomes female and what's female becomes male, but, but, the, but the polarity and the attraction and the generative nature, the creative generative nature of this dance of the cosmos is, um, is, what, they're, is what they're interested in, and, and keeping it, keeping it uh, well-oiled and nourishing to all levels of, of, of being and creation is their, is their goal in the practices and in the study. So uh, you don't see, I did pick a couple of juicy passages there, I have to admit, not everything reads just that way. But I thought it was a nice compliment to the to the Lurianic prayer, which which also like I could I could give you a kind of sexualized reading of the Lurianic material that we read. The gender isn't in your face there, but everything is based on these polarities in that in that intention. Whereas in the, the Balshentov is just saying, look, don't worry about the details. Focus on the letters. Imagine the letters are in a state of loving union with each other, creating these words that you're pronouncing in your prayer. And that's where the magic will happen, not, not with some sophisticated idea about the secret code that you need to unlock to make sense of the whole thing, but just in your spontaneous attention to what is happening of itself and in itself. Uh, so. So that's a good place to stop. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>